0: It is a great joy to be able to worship together with you church And know that we've worshiped in many ways this morning if you think about it Even during our announcements as we discussed the ways that we as a church Spend time building relationships together We spend time serving one another serving our community. Those are all acts of worship As we spent time giving today, that's an act of worship As we spent time singing Praises to our god and our savior jesus christ. That's Obviously what we what we usually call worship, but that's an act of worship It's also ministering to one another In ephesians and colossians. It talks about uh, Ministering to one another in hymns and songs and spiritual songs So you just served one another. I almost lost my voice. Those are Can't not sing those songs out Then I just kind of stopped because I remembered I had to come up here and talk for a while <laughs> It's worship and now as we get together here, at this time, we're going we're gonna to open up our ears and, and our hearts and let God tell us how it is. <laughs> we're going to let him be God and learn from his revealed word. That's an act of worship. We're going to observe the Lord's Supper today, have communion together. That's an act of worship. And then afterwards, we're going to have a time where we as a church can decide together to give money to missions. That's worship. Amen. This is a worship service. This is what we came here together to do today All right. Well now let's get into the sermon. That wasn't the sermon. Here we go Who has heard this wise saying before? I just hear my dad's voice in this if it sounds too good to be true It is yeah, that's i've heard that many times if it sounds too good to be true. It is I think of get rich quick schemes the idea of little work and lots of money, right? Watch out for those emails that you might get in your junk box, promising you riches beyond your wildest dreams, if you'll just give them your bank account numbers, so they can hold their money in your accounts and then make sure you get a cut when they take it out. That's actually the other way around. That's how that works. Don't go after that. Okay. Watch out for those. Um, even the idea of something that's growing and growing online degree mills. Have you heard of those before? A diploma mill or a degree mill. You send them a little bit of money, you tell them about all your amazing experience, and voila, you have an unaccredited degree. It's amazing. Won't do much for you, but you can hang it on your wall. Uh, these are shortcuts, aren't they? These are shortcuts that are out there in the world today. Uh, Satan, we call him the father of all liars. We might also call him the taker of all shortcuts or the one who offers shortcuts. Think of his own deception, the shortcuts that he either tried to take or offered. First of all, his own. Remember, he said, it tells us in Isaiah, I will be like the Most High God. Realize Satan has deceived himself. (laughs) He thinks he's going to win. That makes sense, right? He's deceived. But then in the garden, he said to Adam and Eve, you will not... Surely die and you if you eat this fruit, you will be like god Think of jesus christ in matthew chapter 4 When satan tempts him there, he says I will give you the throne of the entire world If you bow down and worship me satan offered jesus a shortcut and here Today we're going to see in genesis 6 this deceptive scheme of a shortcut that's alive and well still today Meaning in our culture, in our time, in 2018, still happening today. Satan offers this shortcut to the world of living the good life here and now. And I hear you feverishly turning to Genesis 6. Make sure you go back to 5 first, because that's where we're starting today, okay? The major contrast that we're going to see today. People are going to be, quote-unquote, living the good life here and now at their time, while simultaneously living in utter wickedness, with judgment looming. Seems like a problem, doesn't it? Wickedness and judgment looming, and yet this idea of living the good life. How could these things be? And the obvious answer is deception. Deception and we're going to cover a lot of ground today We're going to be in parts of genesis 5 and 6 primarily with some other parts thrown in there to help us to understand But along the way, we're going to discuss some very interesting components to this narrative this part of genesis Remember, we're going through genesis 1 to 11 in this series There's gonna be some really interesting things that we see today some things that are very much so head scratchers that have been confusing people for a long time And we're going to figure them all out today Just kidding. No, we're not so prideful to think that all of the scholars and all of the very godly people that have studied this for years, that they somehow didn't know something we know, and now we've got it all figured out. But we at least can talk through it and think about what is there and learn what we can learn from what God has revealed to us. And our minds can be changed from time to time on some of these issues, and it will be okay. And we'll see why in a little bit, okay? First of all, let's go into the Word of God in Genesis chapter 5. Of course starting in verse 1 it says this is the book Of the generations of adam remember in the book of genesis. Those words are like a chapter marker uh, Moses didn't put chapter 1 chapter 2 chapter 3 in the front of each of these chapters that we see They did that later on much later on And so they would use this kind of a literary tool to say New topic new portion new chapter if you will and this was the terminology. This is the book of the generations of it says when God created man he made him in the likeness of God remember that right male and female he created them and blessed them and named them man when they were created remember Adam's name Adam in Hebrew is what is the word for man or mankind so Adam's name literally is man okay uh, that name taken from the hebrew word for the ground because remember that man was taken from the ground and the hebrew word for ground is adamah Just add like an a h after adam And so this is a reminder to man of where he's come from and now after the curse where he's returning to right It says in verse 3 when adam had lived a hundred and thirty years He fathered a son Which already sounds kind of crazy, Right But he fathered a son at 130 in his own likeness after his image. And he uh, named him Seth. In his own likeness and in his image. You see the same language there, that God created man and woman in his image after his likeness. And then it says Adam had a son at 130 and after his likeness, after his image. What does that mean? And we think, first of all, that could be some bad news, right? Because the image of Adam is... Not what it was And adam will surely die. And so that is also attributed to Seth And everybody from then on right uh, But remember when it said that god made man and woman in this image We have to go back and think about who was this book written to originally who were the first readers And these are the people of israel, right? in the ancient near east at that time uh, if you remember from a couple weeks back when we first talked about this, the typical practice for kings, when they would go off and, and conquer a new region, a new area, they would go out there and set up things to remind the people who was in charge. And so they might put a new place in their capital or wherever was a prominent place for them. They would, they would maybe put a statue there of their head, the bust, a bust statue. And it would say on there, in the image and likeness of, and then name the king. And they would also set up a person to rule and reign in their place on their behalf, like an ambassador, but a kingly one. Think higher up than an ambassador. And that term was a vassal king. And that person's job was to rule and reign in that region on behalf of, in the same way as the high king would rule. And if they didn't do it the way the high king would, they'd get them out of there and put somebody else in their place to make sure that they were accurately re- Represented to those people in that rulership in that dominion And so remember that god made adam and eve in His image and likeness and they, he put adam and eve In charge in dominion god god gave adam dominion over the earth And so now you remember that adam and eve had more than one son more than two more than Three and the, actually it will say that here in a minute when we read on here but it says that adam Had seth that Seth was in his image and likeness. So now think back to Jacob and Esau. What did those guys fight over? Think of the birthright. Think of the double portion. And it should have been Esau who was chosen, right? Because he was the firstborn son. But who was the one who carried on the family? Who was the one that became the one in charge of the next generation? It was Jacob. Who was Adam's firstborn? Cain. Cain. But who was the one that would carry on dominion? Who was the one who would carry on leadership and rulership of that next generation? Seth. Does that make sense? And so that's why it uses that language here in this passage. Verse 4 says The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years. Go, Adam. And he had other sons and daughters. Who did Cain marry? Yeah, his sister Ugh, oh, gross Remember, that didn't come into play The idea that you were not to marry somebody that close in your family That came into law So this is after Egypt, during the time of Exodus And before we get all judgmental on Cain and Abel and Seth and these guys Who else were they going to marry? Okay And we know this today That ancestral relationships result in, in a lot of like physical deformities and things like that Because of the way things are And we're thousands of years beyond all of that perfect creation. So at the point of creation, in those first generations, uh, these things just on the other side of the curse, there weren't those kinds of issues and there weren't those kinds of problems. How do we know that? Uh, 930 years of life. They seem to be doing okay. Right? But then as it goes on, as time goes along, as, as mankind goes along, and the curse continues to take further root and further hold of our physicality even— Uh, God says, no more of that. No more brothers and sisters, no more of those kinds of things. Does that make sense? That's how that carried on from there. So it says, verse 5, thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Now, 930 years might sound ridiculous to us. Certainly it would if somebody we saw today was 930 years old. We'd say, yeah, right. (laughs) But remember... What was Adam made to do? Adam was made to live forever. 930 years is pretty short compared to forever. Would you agree with that? Uh, God said, if you eat of this, you will surely die. And Adam surely died. Now, later on, God decides for our own good to reduce the lifespan of mankind. And that was for our own good. 930 years of wickedness is a bad idea. Right? But Adam lives that long in the generations behind him. Okay? Here's the thing we have to remember. Adam died. Doesn't matter how long he lived. Adam died, as God had said he would. 930 years later, he died. Now, the rest of chapter 5 is the genealogy that follows the line from Adam through Seth and down to Noah. So as opposed to reading through this entire genealogy, I I helped us out. Uh, There's going to be something on the screen that's going to pop up here. There it is. Okay. Now, as we look at this together, okay, class is in session. If you notice, we said Adam was born. Wait, was Adam born? Adam wasn't born. He was created. But that he was created 4,000 years before Christ. Now, is that an exact number? Did I just discover the first... Day of creation is exactly 4,000 years. No, but that, as we look, and Bible scholars look at at the genealogies of the Old Testament, it seems to be that 4,000 years before Christ was when creation occurred. Which means we've been here, the earth, for a little over 6,000 years. Okay? So, for the purpose of our discussion today, let's pretend it was exactly 4,000 B.C. Just so that we can see... Uh, some significant things about the years of the life of these men. Does that make sense? Okay, so don't go home today and jump on social media and say, Pastor Andy knows the year that Abraham died. No, I don't. Okay, we're just we're just estimating and saying as if 4,000 is the starting point. Okay, make sense? So we have on here, on this first slide, Adam from 4,000 to 3070, 930 years, and going on from there, you see Adam, you see Seth, Enosh, Canaan, the funnest name to stand on this list, Mahal Alel, Jared, and then Enoch. You see something significant on Enoch? I helped you, I bolded and italicized and underlined it. What's the deal with Enoch? 365 years. Poor guy. But no, look at chapter 5, I'm going to start reading in verse 21. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah for 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. The pattern of this genealogy, at that point, you're thinking, wait a minute, what happened? Enoch walked with God. That's what happened. And he was not. For God took him. As I said, the genealogy here, the formula should have been Enoch lived this many years, he fathered Methuselah, he lived after he fathered Methuselah this many years, and he died. That's the formula of this genealogy. And everybody else, it says that. But something happened. Many believe that Methuselah's name, uh, the meaning behind it, the words that make it up, have something to do with the idea of shooting out. Or like a weapon shooting forth. Uh, that the idea carried there would be the idea of judgment. Interestingly, I went ahead and bolded up, Methuselah's year of his death, estimated, right, year of his death, that would be the year that the flood came. So if 4,000 is the year one of creation, then the flood happened in 2344 B.C. Remember, that's give or take. (laughs) Methuselah died that year, potentially even in the flood. Something else, right? So the idea here is, and it says that Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah. So the idea here is, did Enoch hear and know this from God in naming his son what he named him, and that thereafter, this was a moment of repentance, this is a a moment of coming awake and alive in Enoch and his relationship with God, and so that, for the next 300 years, he faithfully walked with God. And man, we're impressed with people who walk with God faithfully for 70 years. 300 years Enoch faithfully walked with God. And unlike Adam and the rest, Enoch's portion of the genealogy does not say, and he died. It says God took him. And there are only two men in the Bible that are recorded, and two men in history that were recorded to not have died. Enoch, and if you do in your Bible trivia, Elijah. Those two men are the only too, very interesting. Uh, notice also, as I said before, Methuselah dies the year of the flood, and then look at Adam's year of his death. And then look at Lamech's birth. Adam lived nine generations on, he saw nine generations born. Okay, and just so you know the years that I got up there are just because it says he lived 930 years He lived 972 years. He lived. Does that make sense? And we just went on from there. Adam saw nine generations born Talk about an amazing family picture That would have been something else, right? Now look at the next slide here. These are the generations from Shem the son of Noah To Abram or Abraham. These are taken from Genesis 11 Okay? Uh, we have Shem, Arpakshad, Shelah, Eber, Peleg, Reu, Sereg, Nahor, Terah, Abram. Notice what year estimated here Shem would have died. 1842, right? Look at the year that Abraham was born. Estimated at 2052. Who was still alive when Abraham was born? Wow. They lived a long time. Right and the next slide kind of truncated here Adam to Jacob There's Adam Adam is still alive when Methuselah is born Methuselah lives to the flood Lamech Noah Shem 1842 if you will And then if those years line up Then Jacob Jacob would have been 50 years old When Shem died Jacob, the father of the 12 tribes, 50 years old when Shem died. Isn't that just amazing to think about this? There's three things to think about as we consider these genealogies. Uh, Number one, except for Enoch, all these men did what Adam did, right? They died. They're all dying. Uh, Number two, they lived very long lives and they had many sons and daughters. These are healthy guys with healthy wives. And they're living a long time, and they're having a lot of babies. Think of the population explosion that is taking place as a result of that. But then also, these people were around for a long time, for nine generations at times. It seems like they would have been around to tell their kids and their grandkids and their great-grandkids and their great-great-great-great-keep-going-grandkids Of the things of the Lord. And yet it seems as though the Bible only tells us that Seth and then his son Enosh, and then maybe a few other people, then that is when people began to call upon the name of the Lord. And then Enoch and then Noah, these are the only people who are mentioned as to have been walking with the Lord. All of these people living all of these long lives population explosion, and we have evidence of four people that are walking with the Lord. And and the genealogy kind of screams this out. Only Enoch doesn't say that he walked with the Lord. Everybody else had life, gave birth, lived, died. And there's the formula, right? So something is going on here. Chapter 6, verse 1. When man began to multiply... Remember this population explosion. They were multiplying on the face of the land and and daughters were born to them. And here's where the head-scratching really starts. As if the previous wasn't. That the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. And they took as their wives any they chose. Let's skip down to verse 4. The Nephilim. The Nephilim, this is the name that means uh, these are men of renown. These are uh, possibly giants. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and that's the terminology for the consummation of their marriage, and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Okay, this is one of those things where we're not going to pretend. That we have this all figured out, but let me explain to you some, uh, some options and some ideas, okay? What are these terminologies, the sons of God, being given with and, and being partnered with the daughters of men? Uh, some people believe this, option one, that these were prominent leaders. That they were men who were princes, they were rulers, okay? The word in Hebrew for God is Elohim. And that pluralization in Hebrew could mean plural, like we add an S onto things to make them more than one in English, but it also can mean grandeur, uh, magnanimous, powerful, and things like that. And it could have been attributed to capital G God, and it could potentially be attributed to little g gods. And so it might be the truth when you're reading about, like, the Philistines who had the gods that they worshipped, the Egyptians and the gods that they worshipped, that it could use the word Elohim because it's talking about all of the little g gods. Does that make sense? Uh, the word god, we do the same thing. We just capitalize the g and we do a little, little g if it's not the true god. That's what we do in our language, right? And the same thing was true there. So the idea here, maybe they were calling these men of renown, these princes, these rulers, the sons of the gods. Isn't that kind of an idea? So these could just be politically powerful, warrior-type men who did whatever they wanted. That's option One. Option two might sound super crazy, that the sons of God were demons, fallen angels, or men who were possessed by demons. Uh, The term sons of God, that phrase, is also found in Psalm 89 6, in Job 1 and 2, in 2 Peter 2, and in Jude. And every time in the Bible that phrase is used, it's used to describe angels And specifically fallen angels But we know that an angel or a demon could never procreate with a human Right. We know that that's not possible. That's not how god made creation. They were supposed to procreate after their kind Right. That's how god made creation. So what had to have happened here? What had to have happened, if that's what it is, and if if we're going to go ahead and keep on this idea of the sons of God being angelic beings or being demons in this instance, you would have to have, as in all other places in Scripture, men who were willing. Right? Demon possession doesn't happen by accident. These would have to be men who are willing. This would be a recipe for disaster. Men who want a shortcut. We're going to talk about shortcuts now. Men who want a shortcut to power. Men who want a shortcut to strength, to prestige, to live a better life, the good life that others don't have. But then also demons, who also want to experience power and strength and prestige. Remember, they're under judgment. But that also find the women to be attractive, and they want to experience what it's like. You have these men who want this shortcut You have demons who want a shortcut. Mutually agreeing together. A mutual interest. And the idea is that they would take that shortcut. Does that make sense? That's the only way we can really make sense of that possibility. Now, is that possible with us thinking through it that way? Yeah. Then it's possible. So if that's the case, we now have a world that wants power that wants, quote-unquote, the good life. Remember, that's a line of deception, but the good life. And is working in conjunction, potentially, here with fallen angels to get it, to accomplish it. And the result is rampant wickedness. Think about what's necessitated by this agreement and this, this working together. Rampant wickedness, a population explosion, and people who are godless in their thinking. They think they're living the good life. Look at Matthew chapter 24 with me real quick. Matthew chapter 24. We need to see what it was like in the days of Noah, because this is what's talking about here in this passage in Genesis. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus is talking about what it's going to be like when he comes again, the second coming, okay? This is verse 36. Jesus says, "...but concerning that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only." For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were doing what? Eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. These people, population explosion, this potential demon interaction, working together in conjunction with one another, oblivious to the judgment that's looming, thinking that they're living the good life. This is the condition of things in the days of Noah. Noah is building an ark because judgment is coming and the people just carried on living the life, eating and drinking. Eat, drink, and be merry, right? They were eating and drinking and marrying. A little different, different spelling there giving away the next generation, giving them into this new way of doing things and this struggle for power. It sounds like a contrast, right? The idea that they're living the good life, but yet they're in rampant wickedness, rejecting God, ignoring the idea of judgment. How is that possible? But question, is this any different than what the world would think today? When we look at society's idea of what it means to live the life, to live the good life, what does that generally look like? And if the world gets to define that today, does it look like, and he walked with God? Probably not. These people thought they'd found a shortcut, a way to better their strength, their power, their renown, a way to become little g gods. Remember Satan's deception, I will be like the Most High God, or to Adam and Eve, you will be like God. It seems as though in Genesis 6, he says, and the demons say to these people, You will be gods. It was deception. It was a shortcut. It was wicked. It was godless. And for the good of the world and for the good of mankind, it had to be stopped. This is the direction the world was heading, and God had to put it to a stop. Go back to Genesis 6, verse 3 now. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. This is either a shorter lifespan for man, or the timing of this gives us the possibility this is 120 years until the day of judgment. I'm giving mankind 120 more years before the judgment comes. And then verse 5, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And then listen to these words, That every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It's a bad report. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him. He was saddened by what man had become. Remember that God feels that we can grieve him. Ephesians 4.30 says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. It says that it grieved him him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man. Judgment is coming. I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I've made them. Verse eight is a segue into next Sunday. But Noah found favor, grace, in the eyes of the Lord. Now quickly, as we uh, move towards the end here, we want to think today About how the word of God here this passage can speak into our own lives Uh, Let's remember that the father all of all lies the father of all lies and the offerer of shortcuts Satan is still active and seeking to destroy us today And so I want to alert you to two major lies two major shortcuts false doctrines That are all too often being offered to us today so that we can apply this passage Our lives today and one of them I think we'll probably all quickly agree with and one of them may be a surprise The first one is the false doctrine of self-esteem High self-esteem or low self-esteem Either way the idea behind it is that you're esteeming yourself Okay It takes man and makes him very big It takes god and makes him very small It changes the value of all things to be measured by, now, how they make me feel. How they make you feel. Something is good if it makes me feel good about myself. Something is bad if it makes me feel bad about myself. This is where relativism comes from, that anybody could say what is right and wrong for themselves. Uh, God and people. God and people are either being good or bad to you based on whether or not you are getting what you want. That's the fruit of self-esteem and the idea of self-esteem. Now, we can confuse self-esteem with the idea of confidence. Confidence is not a bad thing. We serve the king of kings. We've been saved by the king of kings. We're living forever with him. We're going to rule and reign with him. We have every reason to be confident. Not cocky, not prideful, not arrogant, but confident, yes. But he didn't do it because we're the center of the universe. This is not true. Think about Job. Job is a great example of this. In the beginning, when remember Satan comes in and tries to destroy everything and get Job to, to reject God, Job says, "The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord." Great start, right? Then his friends come and for a week they do a good job and they keep their mouth shut and they just sit there with him and grieve with him, and then they start speaking and go south from there, and they tell Job what you remember? They said, uh, "This is all you're doing. This is your sin." If you hadn't done this, none of this would have happened. You need to repent, Job. This is you. This is you. This is you. This is you. And Job disagreed and yet agreed. Because first he said, no, I didn't sin. This is not happening because of my sin. And to that he was right. It didn't happen because of his sin. But the part that Job eventually bought into was that it was about him. That part he eventually bought into to the point where he would say, God, you're being unfair to me. You're not being good to me. Step up and answer this. And then God stepped up and answered it. Remember? Then God does show up. And he shares with Job the truth. God reminds Job who he is and who Job is. And Job remembers some of the most vital truths to our spiritual health and growth. These are what they are. God does not exist for my good pleasure. Job remembers that. Job remembers, I am not the center of the universe. And Job remembers, this is not about me. God burst Job, Job's bubble. He burst his bubble. And Job repented in dust and ashes. And it's the best thing that could have happened to him. He learned to esteem God. And that was where he found his joy, in his rest. And this second shortcut here is, in a sense, not even in a sense, very much so riding in on the waves of the movement that is the idea of the self-esteem. And it's the false doctrine of the health and wealth prosperity gospel. The idea that if you have enough faith, if you believe in yourself, thinking positively about yourself, do you see the tie in there? If you believe highly about yourself, that the money will start rolling in and all the sicknesses will flee. That you will be able to live your best life now. Right here, right now. That you will be able to realize your full potential now. Does this sound like a shortcut, church? This is a shortcut. And it sounds just like the shortcut of Genesis 6. Think selfishly, strive to live the best life now, and realize your full potential. The sick thing is that in Genesis 6, they use demons to do it. In the prosperity gospel message, they use Jesus. Think of the mockery to our God, the mockery to the gospel, to think that Jesus exists for you to have the best life here and now and give you money and give you perfect health if you'll just have enough faith. It's gross. It's anti-gospel. It's not just uh, off to the side. It is anti-gospel. It is anti-Christ. And it uses the name of Jesus to accomplish its mission. And when I was thinking through this message, I was telling you, church, I I, I wanted to, like, yell about this, but I had to remember that they're not here today. You are. (laughs) So, church, I'm pleading with you as your pastor, watch out for that stuff. Know the truth. Steer way clear. Of that message. It's false. It's a lie. Satan's tricky. He's a schemer. But he's also very consistent. Genesis 6 is still happening today. Just looks different. Uh, You know, when the truth doesn't change because our God never changes. And truth is truth. Then the opposition can't change a whole lot either. It's firing at the same target all the time. You know, Jesus never took any shortcuts. Amen? Look at Matthew 5 with me real quick. It's just important that we see this today. This is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Verse 2 says, And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Think about the prosperity gospel and then think about this passage. Blessed are the poor in spirit. These are the humble be humbled, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. This is a sorrow, a godly sorrow over our own sin, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, people who are tender hearted, submissive. They're going to inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They are urgently seeking after Christ likeness, they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, people who don't give others what they think they deserve. For they shall have mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, the sincere, for they shall see God. Blessed are peacemakers. Peacemakers, not peace fakers. Not people who just sweep everything under the rug. People who acknowledge that we are at enmity with God. We are enemies with God and that we need Jesus Christ. These are people who make and mature disciples. That's what a peacemaker is. For they shall be called, and check this language out, they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. That is not the prosperity gospel. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Remember, the the disciples said in Acts that they rejoiced, that they were counted worthy to suffer with Christ. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And we know this from Scripture. So they hated God the Son himself. Blessed, by the way, means happy. God wants you to be happy. But happiness is not found in the temporary stuff in this world. It's not there. It's not there. Not believing in the idea of self esteem or the prosperity gospel does not, Christians, make us a woe is me and a doom and gloom people. It's not godly to be stubborn or godly to be downcast. That's not it. The idea of self-esteem and prosperity gospel are lies, they're shortcuts, and they'll always fail. So on the other end of believing those things, then our countenance is fallen. Now think back to Cain from chapter 4. God told Cain, you are angry because you took a shortcut. You decided your own way to worship me. And now your countenance has fallen. But if you do well, it will be lifted. God wants us to be happy. God wants us to find rest. But we will only find that when we find it in him. He's the center of the universe. He is the one who never takes shortcuts. So we need to be found in him, in Christ. Remember Satan's temptation? I spoke of it earlier in Matthew chapter 4 of Jesus Christ. He said, you, Jesus, can be the king of the earth, the king of the whole world, right now, not later. Right now, if you worship me. He offered Jesus a shortcut, which would have eliminated the cross. Eliminated our salvation. Eliminated his glory. Jesus, though, said, no. God alone is the one whom you should serve. And he went to the cross, and he paid the penalty of our sin, and he suffered in our place. He redeemed us, and he bought us at a great price. He didn't take a shortcut, and we're here today because of it. So church, put all of your faith and all of your trust in Jesus Christ. Stay away from shortcuts. Know the truth. You know the truth. You can see those shortcuts and those lies and those deceptions and see them for what they are so that we can rightly, knowingly worship the Lord our God and serve him only. That is how you find happiness. That is how you find joy. That is how you find life. And we're like Adam. We're sinners. We're going to die. But in Christ, (laughs) that changes, doesn't it? We live forever with him. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for giving us Jesus Christ. Thank you for our salvation in him. Thank you for the life that you give to us in him. And God, as we move on now in this service to a time where we purposefully stop and we inspect our hearts and we, and we look to what you accomplished for us on the cross in Jesus Christ, God, help us. Help us to be growing. Help us to be loving. Help us to be honest and sincere that we would be poor in spirit, that we would mourn, that we would be peacemakers, that we would be meek, and that you'd be glorified by it. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.